We are in, I think, the third week, fourth week of a new series. We've been looking at Jesus, um, which is kind of odd for a Christian church to look at, but that is the single focus we've been taking for these weeks. Um, and I mean odd in terms of it seems so broad to who we are. It is who we are. We are people who follow Jesus. So we're looking at something so fundamental to who we are. This is not an aspect of some little thing we do or some portion of scripture or some particular book, but we are looking at Jesus, the center and foundation of our faith. Um, A few weeks ago, I spoke on the Trinity, and last week, Terry uh, took a look at the prophecies that came before Jesus in the Old Testament, Um, starting back uh, in Genesis 3, when right after the fall, even before Adam and Eve are from the garden, um, it's prophesied that a son of man would step and crush the head of the serpent and be injured in doing so. And then on through that, progressively, Terry looked again and again at how there was an expectation of a Messiah who would come, um, which comes in the form of Jesus. So we've kind of spent two weeks looking at Jesus prior to his birth. Um, and the expectation that existed prior to that. And now we're moving into the fulfillment of that expectation. We're looking at Jesus actually coming. From this point on, we're going to look at what occurred after Jesus was born. Um, And there's a funny thing about expectations being fulfilled. Um, Sometimes it can be disappointing. Um, I'm a person, and I don't know how much I stand alone in this, I usually am more delighted with the presents on Christmas prior to opening them um, because before the boxes are unwrapped, they can be absolutely anything and everything. They can be everything I'm going to eventually get, plus a myriad of other things that I will not get. And after you've actually opened them, that's what you have. Um, And I don't think it just flows on me and my peculiarities of Christmas morning. Um, This shows up again and again in our life. Um, I remember a few years back, I was at my mother's house going through some documents because every time I visit her house, she wants to get rid of more of the things she's keeping of mine. Um, So she has me sort through a number of things and decide which items to keep and which items to throw out. And I found a journal my fifth grade teacher had me write before I was going into middle school. And we were moving from Georgia to Indiana, going into sixth, sorry, going into sixth grade. And I write about how, I mean, I write, I'm a little disappointed that I'm moving, but generally speaking, I'm expectant about what's to come. I'm excited about this new city, going to something called junior high and all the new friends I'm going to make and the expectations of what this is. Um, Sixth grade was the year that I spent eating alone uh, with my sad little hamburger and crying at lunch because I knew no one for four months of that year. Um, looking back at that and knowing what lay, what was coming for this poor, stupid kid who's looking forward to going to sixth grade, you saw expectations getting, that were about to be dashed. Um, and this is something we struggle with continuously. I mean, you're in high school, you have all these expectations of what's to come, and part of what happens through life is expectation and potential becomes reality. Um, and you reach the midlife crisis oftentimes that people go through is hitting a point of going, I was going to be so much, is this all there is? 
Um, and LA has invented their own brand of it, the quarter-life crisis that you hit around 29 to 30, where you sit and go, I was going to be so much going out of college, and now I have a job, and I haven't yet made it. Is this all that it's going to be? So there is a question when you look at great expectations of how they are going to be fulfilled. And the question we have as we come to Jesus is, does he disappoint on these fulfillments? Um, there was an expectation of what there was going to be a Messiah. There were promises that were given, and there was a vision of what this was going to be. And when Jesus actually came, he didn't quite match up. He was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem. They also thought he would kick out the Romans and establish a kingdom. He doesn't do that. Um, so as we move forward in this series, we're shifting from an abstract Trinity view. We're shifting from an expectation into a concrete view of Jesus. And we want to look at how he lives up to those expectations. I mean, the truth is he exceeds them. But we want to consider how. We want to get into the specifics. And there's a challenge of dealing with the concreteness of Jesus. Um, so we're going to look at a lot of aspects over the week to come. Um, but in this one, we're looking at a very basic one. Uh, we are looking at the incarnation. Um, what it means for God to come in the flesh. And Terry had said, I drew the short straw in pulling the Trinity a couple weeks back. And um, to be honest, that has been nowhere near as challenging as wrestling with what the incarnation means. Um, the Trinity seems oddly simple compared to the incarnation. Um, Yeah, it has been a challenging week of preparation for this and trying to understand and how to communicate what it meant for the eternal second person of the Godhead to come in human form. Um, And there is no silver bullet text in scripture for this. There's no single passage you can go to and get a nice, concise description of what the Trinity is and how it plays out and what it means. I mean, I've said before, and it still holds true here, the Bible is sometimes frustratingly not a systematic theology text. It's not like you turn the page and Paul is like, okay, guys, now we're going to talk about the Trinity for three pages. I'm sorry, the Incarnation for three pages. I'll lay it out in detail exactly what it is, how it works. I'll think of the different theories that might swirl around about this. I'll answer them. And by the end of it, we'll come together with a few reference points for further reading, and you'll understand how the Incarnation works. Um, Scripture does not work that way. It tends to be a narrative, or it is things written to the people in that narrative. So you either have the stories being told about people, or you have a letter being written to address people in that spot. And a lot of the theology we get and things like the Incarnation comes within the flow of that. It's to explain something else and why something's being done, as the text that Mike read earlier from Philippians 2, where Paul is urging them to be humble... So he points to how Jesus was incarnated. We really wish he would stop and then explain further, but he doesn't. He just keeps moving along with the flow of the letter. And that's how we have to pull a lot of this together. Um, But beyond that, the incarnation is also something we wouldn't expect to find in that way. Because this is not some ancillary aspect of our faith. It's not a side portion. It's not how we do this or that particular item. It's sort of like this sermon series is. It's something that touches upon the whole thing. The incarnation is speaking of who Jesus is. And Jesus is the center of our faith. So we would expect 
this person and who Jesus is to be written throughout the scripture. And that's what we find. We pull together and we come to an understanding of the Trinity, not from a particular passage here and nothing else, but from the full testimony of the scripture, which again presented a um, particular challenge in preparation this week because Genesis through Revelation is a really challenging text to preach from. Um, I could get about halfway through Genesis if I just started reading, much less talk about anything else or the rest of the Bible. So what I've decided to do, instead of going through a text, is to look at one of the early Christian uh, church creeds. We're going to look at the Chalcedonian Creed, which was written in 451. So this is something that's almost 1,600 years old. Um, it is something that's recognized by a, the vast majority of Christians. Um, both Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic hold it authoritative in their view of tradition. And most Protestant denominations also recognize it as something that is a good summation of the scriptural truth. So it is something that has, some, that has been identified and recognized by Christians throughout the generations and is still very heavily recognized today. Um, before I read it, I don't know how many of you have read creeds recently. Um, they have a particular nature. They are designed to be a very condensed form of information. You're, they're not something that's meant to be a long explanation, but they're trying to take a vast array of theological truths and bring them down into a short statement that can be affirmed. The result is very particular language that's very densely packed. As I read this, you'll feel like they're just jamming as many ideas as they can into a paragraph, and they really kind of are to get it all across. Um, and it would read a lot easier if you were to break this out into what I'm doing, a full talk through it. But the idea was to make it dense. So just I'm warning you so that you don't wonder why I'm just saying as many big words as I can in a stream. Um, so without going any further, here is the text of the Chalcedonian Creed written in 451. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach people to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, of one being with the Father according to the Godhead and also being with us according to his humanity, in all things like us, like unto us, except sin begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to the, to the manhood. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, without confusion, without conversion, without division, and without separation. The distinction of the natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, and only begotten God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. As I said, it's a very tightly packed paragraph. There's like 75 semicolons in that paragraph. Um, 
But I want to say just a few things about it that uh, point to Jesus and the truth of the incarnation. Um, the first actually doesn't concern Jesus, but it concerns the authors. They start with, we then following the Holy Fathers all with one consent. And then they end, so they book in this with, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers is handed down to us. In both of those things, they are referencing something that came before them. This is not people who sat down to make a novel um, idea about Christ and decided to write it down, and we happen to think it was the coolest thing we've seen, so we held on to it for generations. Um, Terry spoke, and we drew out last week, how there was, we stand in a stream of history. Um, this is not a faith that sprung up with us, each of us in Jesus in the past 30, 40 years. Uh, it's not something that individually happens magically from each time a person gets saved. There is something magical in an individual that happens there, but it's part of a larger story. And that's what Terry was talking about partially last week when he was talking about this, was a, this is a Jewish story that starts back at Adam and moves on through, testified by prophets throughout the, the generations until Jesus comes. Terry covered that story from Adam through John the Baptist, of people testifying to who Jesus was. And a common mistake we can make, even if we accept that, and a lot of modern Christians, our version of the story runs Adam through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, on and on, to John the Baptist, Jesus, then Peter, then Paul, dot, 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 me. And it's a gigantic gap in the center. We can turn this into something where at this text, it ended until it erupts back into our individual lives. And we're losing something when we do that. Um, the authors of this creed were self-consciously looking back, trying to figure out what has been handed down to them going back to this book. We, as moderns, we have a very progressive view of history and how the world works, and I don't mean that in the political sense. I simply mean we have a view where everything is continuously getting better, we are coming to know more and more, so we are consistently discarding history. If we speak of other generations when we're talking about how we do things, we tend to do it in terms of the children to come. Whereas an ancient or older history would have looked back and gone, what have the people who came before us said about this thing? Um, Chesterton referred to tradition as the democracy of the dead. It's allowing the dead a chance to vote in how we move forward. It's being shaped by what they have done before us. Um, we have, as moderns often, an intellectual hubris, which looks and thinks that we, in each time, can figure out how things need to be from scratch, and we can discard what came before. Um, and the truth is, generally speaking, when a group has taken the Bible and run with it from themselves, either being me and my Bible and an interpretation, or me and my group and an interpretation, you've run off into bizarre sex. S-E-C-T-S. Um, but... What we have instead is, and we are doing this whether we're conscious of it or not, none of us has come forth and leaped into Christianity without having been shaped by those who come before us. But we do well to self-consciously look back. 
we find that a lot of the issues we have now have been addressed before. As we move into being a minority force in this culture, um, we, this is not something that's new to the church. This is something the church has walked through for years. As we deal with different theological controversies, um, we find that they have been faced before. Sometimes the charge is lobbed against us that any move to a figurative reading of Genesis 1 is something that simply emerged in response to um, Darwinism and evolution. But the truth is, that's something that if you read Augustine, he was talking about it in three, the 300s, that there was a possible figurative reading of that. We find the assaults on biblical authority have been responded to multiple times throughout history. No challenge is new. So we have a gigantic wealth that's come before us. But on the flip side of that, we are not um, Catholics. We don't look back to tradition and hold it as an equal standing to the authority of Scripture. We look at this and we view the creeds and the things that come before us, that we interact with them well, we interact with them as wise tutors and people to help educate us as to how to read things. We come to these creeds and we see the, this creed, for example, we see an accumulation at this point of 300, 400 years of people wrestling with this, the scriptures and writing down the best wisdom they had to that point to share it with us going forward. We don't hold this up and say this is authoritative and if this runs aground in scripture, we've, we jettison scripture. We look at scripture and we say this provides a guide to our understanding. It provides a condensed statement of the truths that are found in scripture. So that's how we're coming to this. We're coming to it looking as they did to look back to the apostolic, well, I forgot to say it, apostolic, that's what I get from making for my boss a few weeks and he couldn't pronounce it, <laughs> apostolic faith that has handed down from Jesus. We come to a faith that's been handed down from scripture through generations and we are simply trying to stand on the shoulders of those who have come before us to better understand it. So moving on, the first thing they say after saying that they themselves are trying to stand on the people who've come before them to understand this is that they are looking at this to teach people to confess one and the same son, our Lord Jesus Christ. This creed is about the identity of Jesus. It's about who he is. This is not, and we can have an impression that these creeds are like odd theological hobbies for the people who have too much time on their hands. That's not what it is. This is about the identity of Jesus. This is an extension of the Great Commission. Because we are to baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is getting at who those people are. We're to teach them to obey all that he has commanded us. This is getting at what he's told us and who he is and why he has authority to command us of anything. And he, we are to do this with knowledge that he will be with us as we go. And this is looking to answer that question of who stands with us. So when things get hard and we get challenged and we wonder if it's worth it, we wonder who is Jesus who said he'd be with us. That's what this is wrestling with. It's not just to figure out some fancy thing because they were really bored in 451. They saw it as a real challenge of who the identity of the person that they were discipling people to follow was. Who was the people they were giving their, who was the person they were giving their life for? That's what this is trying to answer. And then it does, and it's wonderful language. It's getting at the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully man. 
And that ne- the next section covers that. Jesus is perfect in Godhead. He is fully God and also perfect in manhood, fully man. He is truly God and truly man. He's of a reasonable soul and body, of one being with the Father according, according, according to the Godhead, and also of being with us according to his humanity. In all things he is like us except unto sin. He is begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God according to manhood. Again, it's technical language, but it's saying he is fully God and he is fully man. It's taking two things that we do not think should fit together and it's saying Jesus is both of them. To make its divine case, and because I don't want to simply read a creed, it's pointing back to things like John 1, where it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it goes on to say that Word, Jesus, came in the flesh. And that he still is he's in the bosom of the Father. That is the one who has come in the flesh. Or it points to a text like Colossians, which says about Jesus, Colossians 1, starting in verse 15. This is speaking of Jesus, to hold up this side that he is fully God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So it's looking at that text and it's saying Jesus is someone who is completely divine. Or fully divine, actually. Important which words we use here. And to make the human case, it looks, I mean, you can simply look at the gospel narratives. We see Jesus, like a human, walking. We see him sleeping. We see him eating. The Bible's really big on the fact that Jesus ate. Uh, we see that he was born. We see that he grows. We see that he, comes on, he grows in knowledge. He weeps. He bleeds. He dies. All like a man. The t- scripture testifies that he was like us except for sin. He was fully human. Um, one of the things I love about this creed is that it's wonderfully specific in his, man, in his humanity. Because humanity is specific. We are not a concept. We are not an idea. Each one of us was born to a particular person, lives life in a particular era, and dies in a particular time. And it doesn't simply say that Jesus was born, or that he was born even of a virgin to show that it fulfills the testimony, but it says that he was born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus' mom had a name. Because each of our moms has a name. He had a person who changed whatever version of diaper they had back then. And I've been thinking about this a lot this week because in the midst of preparation, I change a lot of diapers. And they didn't have wipes of the type we had. They didn't have the nice absorbent diapers of the type we have. So it had to be messier. And he had a woman who cared enough to sit there and take care of him in that way. He had a woman who nursed him who took care of him when he was warm, who held him when he cried, who picked him up. 
And she has a name because he's human. And this follows through his whole life. The Apostles' Creed, which is an earlier creed, about a century earlier, it says not just that he died, but he died under the range of Pontius Pilate. He was crucified by particular people on a particular hill at a particular day. We could, if, our, if my Outlook calendar went back that far, I could start clicking back on the months and eventually get to the month where Jesus died and find that day. I'm glad we don't know the exact day. We have ideas. But there was a specific day where Jesus died on a specific hour. And on that same hour, other kids were being born to other moms with names because he was fully human. This pushes against every impulse we have to sentimentalize Christianity or to push it into an abstraction. Jesus was a fully human person the way we are fully human people, except for sin. So fully divine, fully human. Now the great question is how do these two actually connect? What joins them? How can you have fully divine and fully human possibly in one person? And that's where this, that's actually where a lot of the controversy was when this creed was written, and that's what it's working to address. In the next section, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, without confusion, so speaking of the natures, not your confusion reading this, without confusion, without conversion, without division, and without separation. The distinction of the natures being preserved. Sorry. The distinction of the natures by no means being taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved, which is to say the things that make each of these natures distinct not being taken away by the fact they're somehow both held by Jesus. Concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, and only begotten God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. When we spoke of the Trinity, the issue of the Trinity is you have one nature, a divine one, and three persons, which is really hard to explain. We have nothing on creation that matches this, which is why all of the um, metaphors fall short in some way. Here we have one person, which we're used to, but two natures, which we are not used to. We are human people with a human nature, full stop. Jesus is a person with a human nature and a divine nature. This is really hard to hold in our mind. And for the same reason the Trinity is hard to mind, hold in our mind and it tends to run off into a thousand heresies, this one is hard to hold in our mind and it tends to run off into a myriad of challenges. And we tend to tip one of two ways. We either deny that Jesus is fully human. Um, there is an early heresy referred to as asceticism, which is, comes from a word, Greek word that means seems, which is to say that Jesus only seemed human. That he wasn't, this is a Gnostic heresy that in some way, shape, or form, Jesus was a really human-looking phantom. Obviously a somehow solid phantom that could do stuff but he wasn't actually human the way you or me was human. He was something different. He was fully divine, but his humanity was something other than what we had. Um, and again, I think that's part of the reason that the Bible is so big on reminding us that Jesus ate. Because humans need to eat, phantoms don't need to eat. 
Um, I mean, I guess we could go with a theory that like Jesus was doing the trick where you kind of toss the food behind your head while you take the bites to fool people. Um, but it seems unlikely that that was the way this was going. Um, when we were, when I was younger, I was six, my grandmother had um, red hot dried peppers hanging for decoration. And one of my cousins, who was particularly cruel at that age, little, is about my age, tried to trick my little sister into eating one by taking one and doing that thing where he kind of goes, oh, these are great, and throws it behind, and she's like, he's munching it. My sister's five, I think, he's eight. And my sister looks at him, and without missing a beat, goes, oh, and grabs one, and goes like this. And she had done the same exact thing he had just done. He sees her, and he's like, wait, they aren't hot? And he takes one and actually sticks it in his mouth and bites down on it and runs away crying to go tell on her. <laughs> which got him in trouble. So it was very impressive with my sister. She didn't even miss a beat. Just um, the five-year-old saw straight through him. Um, but I guess we could, the assumption is kind of that Jesus is doing something like that. He's tossing fish back, fooling people, but he's not actually human. And the Bible goes through great efforts to combat this. Uh, John's letter, his first epistle, 1 John he just opens chapter 4, for example, with, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. John takes this really serious, this idea that Jesus only appeared human. The testimony of scripture is that Jesus came in the flesh. He was fully human. The other side, and probably more common today, is to deny something of Jesus' divinity. Um, there's, versions, there's different versions of this. One is that um, Jesus was fully human, but at his baptism, what actually happened was at that point, a divine spirit came upon him that then left him when he died. So he just has some divineness for a little bit. A spirit walked around him. Um, a more common one, which is, uh, can go by the name, it's um, canonic theology, which comes from the passage that Mike read, um, where it says that Jesus emptied himself. And it would argue that in the emptying of himself, Jesus actually divested himself of some of the divine traits. So he wasn't fully divine, he was partially divine. Um, and you can see the appeal to this. It's easily understandable. It makes sense of it. It takes the things that don't seem to fit in the Jesus we see walking amongst us, and it sets those aside, and you end up with a Jesus who just has God's character and love. Um, and it reflects easily on some of the things we actually see in Jesus that can be hard to explain, like his limited knowledge, um, the fact that he doesn't seem to know things when he gets asked questions, he says, I do not know some actual aspects, which seem odd and tough if he's God. Um, the problems with it is, one, that God doesn't change. And a God who sets aside aspects of himself is a God who is changing. Um, the other is that it relies on a tritheism, because from what we understand of the Trinity, one God has, the three persons have one nature. 
they can't set aside aspects of that. If you set aside aspects of that nature on one of them, you're setting aside aspects on all because they're sharing the same nature at the same time. It's not three gods with three natures in a tight council. It's three gods with one nature. Um, it also has an issue with um, the passage I read from Colossians talking about how Jesus is, that he is holding all things together, which is something you kind of need to be omnipotent, all-powerful, and all-knowing to do at the current moment. The text there is in the, is in the present tense. He is doing those things while he is incarnate. Because when Jesus, just to clear it up, when he went away to the Father, he didn't give up his human body. He ascended in human form, and he's coming back with that human form. So he, whatever he did then is still going on right now. He just, we can't see him. And the other thing is the text doesn't support it. That when it says he emptied himself, it doesn't say he emptied himself of anything. And when Paul uses that language, when he says emptied without actually specifying something, which he says, I'll actually read you the text in Romans 4, verse 14. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is emptied and the promise is null. We translate it here as null. Sorry, and the promise is void. The text, ESV translation is faith is null and the promise is void, but the word there for null is the exact same word that's used for emptied in that passage. It's a metaphor. It's basically saying he let go of his glory and his position to go stand in human form. That entire passage of Philippians is written from a context of trying to draw us to look to a God who humbled himself. The point is he exists as God. He has all of this might and glory. And rather than use it as something to exploit and plunder as human kings do, he takes a low state as a servant to bring us to salvation. It doesn't require, it is a metaphor to say that he stepped, it's a powerful metaphor to say that he stepped down, that he rendered himself null. So you have here in the text, a, a, in the Bible, you have a vision of a God, a Jesus, sorry, who is fully divine and fully human at the same time. Both of those are coexisting in, at one time. And the creed says they are to be acknowledged in two natures without confusion, without conversion, without division, and without separation. Without confusion or conversion. He doesn't take his two natures and somehow mix them together to get some weird hybrid human divide nature. He doesn't switch from one to the other as the time needs. They sit there without conversion, without confusion. They stay distinct. And without division, though, or without separation, they are held by a single person. And you can see why this gave me more trouble in the Trinity. We have something we can actually see. We can see Jesus. We see him walking. We see him talking. We see him being as he is. At least with the Trinity, I can push it back into, it's foggy, I can't see it. So I can just state what's going on. We see in Jesus a man walking by the side of the sea, talking to people. But what the testimony of the scripture says that we are seeing there is we are seeing a man, a person walking there who is fully man and fully divine at the same time. And divine in all the ways the divine are. And there's that point that my mind kind of hits the gears grind and it just breaks. For a second, you step back in awe and say, what kind of God does this? 
But because these two natures stand side by side, somehow held by one person, you see something that actually can deal with the full testimony of Scripture. Because Jesus had a human nature with a human will and a human intellect, he could actually, as through his human nature, not know things. He could grow in knowledge. He, put himself in a, he could put himself in a position where he had to be dependent on God to do things. Where he had to be dependent on the Father to tell him what to do. Where he had to follow the instruction of the Father because he was fully human. Where he had to work the miracles he worked by the power of the Spirit because he was fully human. One of the delightful things is that means you can surprise Jesus. There's a human man. You can actually tell him a joke and the punchline will work because he won't see it coming in advance. And there's something delightful about that, that for all eternity, we will have a God and Lord who can actually get a joke. But at the same time, we have a God that man we're talking to, while we're talking to him, that person is holding all things together. And in his humility, he's not mixing those two. He's not sitting there and nudging himself, as it is, and we're speaking really weird language now because it's the incarnation, and telling himself things. He actually is still dependent on the Father, but he is at the same time holding all things together. He will come back as Savior at the same time he is bringing about the new creation. Come back as Lord at the same time he's bringing back the new creation. All in one person. There's a question again comes back to how important is this? How important is it that we hold to this idea of Jesus? That we understand who he is? That he sits as one person somehow doing what we cannot do and holding two natures unmixed, distinct, yet fully what each of them is at the same time? Is that that important? And it is massively important. It's because of this that we have reconciliation through Jesus. Humanity rebelled against God. Humanity brought sin upon itself. Humanity stands in opposition. Humanity had to come as one half of what's making that up. A human had to come and actually fulfill the law. A human had to come and die innocently to take away sin. It had to be a human, a full human. You couldn't have part of a human to do it. There's some church father, I forget which one, somebody in the past 2,000 years, um, forgive me for forgetting, but he says essentially, that which is not assumed, in other words, that which is not taken up into Jesus, cannot be redeemed. So if there's an aspect of us that was not taken up into the nature of Jesus, it can't be redeemed. Because it wasn't part of what actually fulfills the law and then pays the penalty. And the only thing, though, that we know that was part of us that's not part of Jesus is sin. That's the part that's not redeemed. Outside of that, all of humanity is redeemed in Jesus because Jesus is fully human. He is, in Jesus, we have a mediator. There was a conflict between God and man, and God made it such that in one person you find both sides of that conflict meeting at the table. 
making a way forward for us. And one of the amazing things is God, through the whole portion of the progression of the redemptive history, he sends angels, he sends prophets, he's consistently working through people. But then when the moment comes, when it's time for the hardest price to be paid, when it's time for to get things the dirtiest, he rolls his sleeves up and he steps in himself. That he comes himself. God does not outsource our salvation. He doesn't call a prophet to do it. He doesn't send an angel to do it. He himself comes, takes on being fully human, and moves forward to bring that about. And you can go on about the importance in a number of aspects, but I just that last idea points to the other thing that I really want to point to. Um, one of those very horrible sentences. It points to the last item I want to point to. A God who does not outsource our salvation, a God who gets his hands dirty, a God who pays the price, points to something about God. And the last thing I want to say is understanding this idea of the incarnation is important for three kinds of knowledge. The first is a knowledge of God. It's knowing that God is the God who does this. That because we know that it is all a fully divine nature there, we know that God is fully invested in what Jesus is doing. We know that as we have seen the Son, we've seen the Father. To know the Son is to know the Father. To know that Jesus loves you is to know that God loves you. To know that Jesus will give his life for you is to know the limits and the extent to which God will go for you. There is no gap. If you know Jesus to be some way, you know God to be that way. To know Jesus is to know God. That's what Paul's pointing to. The rest of the series, we're going to be looking at who Jesus is. And we want to hold Jesus up as something special. Because he is. This is not us trying to prop up someone who doesn't live up to the hype. If anything, we're going to manage to undersell him every single week. Because all we have is human words and... We can't come close. But we want to hold up this Jesus. But in doing so, we're not simply holding up some guy. Even the greatest guy. We're holding up who our God is. God had, again, going back to that Philippians passage, God had all the rights of God. Jesus had all the rights of Godhood. He was God. And everything we know about humans and authority is you use that to plunder, to take from people. You enrich yourself to some level or another. But God, in full power, doesn't do that. He takes a lower stage. He takes the form of a servant to die upon the cross. Jesus made himself dependent. Not simply because that's how Jesus is, but because that's how God is. Somehow we serve a humble God. The one who created everything is somehow humble, which again goes beyond. We just see it in action. And he does, so Jesus comes and he experiences the dependency that we have, and he does it without setting aside this divinity. It's still in his person, but he chooses to consistently and continuously be dependent upon the Father 
to be dependent upon the Spirit, to suffer the humiliations of being a human, and to die upon the cross for us. N.T. Wright said, uh, speaking of this idea of Jesus coming down at this passage from Philippians, that the real humiliation of the incarnation and the cross is that the one who was himself God and never during the whole process stopped being God could embrace such a vocation. That God could be a servant is what we see in Jesus. That's something we do not see outside of Jesus. You need to see Jesus to see God who will take the low state of a servant to bring about salvation. But beyond the knowledge of God, we also get a knowledge of man because Jesus is fully human. Jesus' humanity is not like humanity plus. It's not like um, a really cool version of humanity that is unattainable for everybody else in the world. It is our humanity. It is our humanity except for sin. So when we see Jesus, we see what humanity was meant to be and could be without sin. We see what we can be when sin's taken away. I'm not saying we get a divine nature. I'm saying that we see in Jesus as he lived, as he talked, as he walked, the way he treated people, we see what being truly human is. And we can do this because he is fully human and they're not mixed. He's not, again, humanity plus a little bit of divine sprinkled on top. He is fully human in the way he interacts. So we can see how we can be. And finally, and this is the strangest one, we see something of God's knowledge of us. God has always known who we are. He has no illusions about our state. He testifies throughout scripture um, that we are fairly small by comparison. Uh, That we are like a a flower that sprouts up and has a moment in the sun and withers. Um, That we are dust by comparison. Um, And it's really not an unfair comparison to him. He knows our weaknesses. He knows that we are frail. He knows that we are but human. But he's always known that from a distance. He knows that because he created us. But because Jesus came fully human, God's experienced it himself. The second person of a Godhead stepped into human flesh and experienced what it is like to actually be human. He knows what it is to be weary. He knows what it's like to have been working all day, to come to be in a spot where all you want to do is get away by yourself for a little while and you have more people making demands of you. He knows what it's like to walk alongside of a friend and to laugh at what's going on. He knows what it's like to the joys of just feeling the sun and smelling the ocean. He knows what it's like to be us in all the good ways that we are and all the good things that we experience. And he also knows what it's like to be us in the bad. As I sat in sixth grade rejected, cast outside of the inner circle of sixth grade lunchrooms, which are cruel, cruel places, Jesus knows what that's like. He knows what it's like to be set outside. He knows what it's like to be looked down upon. As we suffer illness or sickness or injury, he knows what it's like to suffer in a human body. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be questioned. 
He knows what it's like to be slandered. That passage that Mike read, just to give a little context about what seemed like a very down psalm, the reference point for that is Jesus upon the cross. Standing there, the worm being laughed at by people who said he knew God, let God rescue him. People who doubted who he was. Jesus knows what it is to stand in that position because Jesus knows, God knows. The scripture says we have a great high priest who knows, who's sympathetic to us. When we are tempted, Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows the how hard it is to resist. He knows how frail we are. He knows what it's like to undergo our lives, not as an eternal being who has all resources in his power, but as one who is simply dependent on what God gives him, moment to moment, day to day. Jesus walked that path too, and he knows that path. So when we come to him in prayer, when we come to him for anything, we're coming to one who knows our frailty for himself. So in Jesus, because of this wonder of the incarnation, because we have in one person something that's fully divine and fully human, we have a reconciliation to God. We have an awareness of God and who he is that we would not have otherwise. We see what the future of humanity can be like. And we see one who is sympathetic and supportive to us as we journey down that path to getting there. We have all of this because God came in the flesh. Because without setting aside his divinity, he took humanity and somehow added that on to a single person to experience both. That's who Jesus is. And that's why these people 1,600 years ago fought fights to hold to the truth of who Jesus is. We have a rich heritage. We have a rich testimony because we have, because it, because, not because it's the values of age, it's because of who it testifies to. We have Jesus.